But today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 22. We'll be reading verses 7 through 38. So would you please stand in honor of God's word as it is read? And before I read, would you pray with me the prayer on the screen? Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe! to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I'll tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Amen. You may be seated. Keith Drury, retired professor from Indiana Wesleyan University, writes in his book, The Wonder of Worship, 
He writes, Larry arrived just in the nick of time for the service this morning. As he slipped into the pew during the first song, an older lady beside him pointed out the hymn number. He thumbed the pages and joined the congregation in singing. Lifting his eyes for the first time since coming in, he spied the communion table in the front of the church. It was covered with a white linen tablecloth, and the communion set on top was also covered with white cloth. Shoot, thought to himself, it's communion Sunday. The pastor won't have studied much this week, and this will be a mostly wasted service. He asked, why is it that some Christians, especially evangelicals, are disappointed in communion Sunday? Now, some of it's surely practical. Several weeks ago when we had communion and we served it, on Saturday night, my wife, uh, as I was getting stuff ready and going over stuff for the sermon, my wife came up and, and she said, oh, by the way, she said, I'm not going to be in the service on Sunday. She said, I switched the first Sunday with the fourth Sunday, and so I'm going to be in children's church. And I looked at her and I said, you know, it's fourth Sunday. I said, we're having communion. And she looked at me and she said, really? She said, is the sermon short? And I said, I'm afraid not. It's actually rather on the long side this week. And, uh, and, and I understand the practicality of that. There's the practicality that if you're the one that's with the kids in the room, that you're praying for the short sermon and that when you see the communion table up front, you just realize you better come up with filler because all of a sudden the service is going long. And many of you have been there. You understand that. I know some people, you walk in, if you see the communion table set, you think all of a sudden, oh my goodness, we are not going to beat the rush to the crowd at the restaurant because now the church down the street is going to get there before we do. You can laugh, but it happens. I know that's what people think. The, uh, why is it that God's people, especially in our tradition, that we almost prefer not to celebrate communion? Especially when I was struck by a verse in this passage this week, when the very first words out of Jesus' mouth as he gathers this th that day with his disciples is this in verse 15, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And I thought, what a contrast sometimes between the attitude of Christ and the attitude that sometimes we walk into church with when we see the communion table set. And so today, God wants us to help us understand communion better, that we might mentally appreciate it, but also He wants us to learn to love communion in our hearts. And so, to do that today, we're going to kind of break the passage apart and look at the different elements of communion, kind of like if you want to know how a clock works, what makes a clock tick, you take it apart. And if you're like me, you hope somehow that when you take something apart, it might go back together. It usually doesn't for me. I have the gift of taking apart, not the gift of putting back together. Um, that's when we buy new appliances. When I decide to fix an appliance, we know it's time to buy a new appliance. And so, because it comes apart, but I want to take apart communion this morning and walk through this passage, taking it apart, but then at the end, hopefully to put it back together, that we might appreciate it in our mind, but that we might also come to love it within our hearts. Now, in this passage, Jesus is celebrating the Passover, 
And first of all, understand this. The Passover is where the Lord's Supper first takes place, but the Passover is ultimately a different meal than the Lord's Supper down through the ages. So the Passover takes us back to the Old Testament. And the Passover goes back to the book of Exodus where God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were living in bondage. God had called Moses to go and deliver his people. So he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said no time after time. And so God sent plagues on the the nation of Egypt until he would let the people go. And Pharaoh would say yes, then he'd change his mind, and then he would say no, the people can't go. And so God sent the 10th plague, the final plague, in which he said the firstborn son of every family will die. But he told his people, he said, tonight, said, you will slaughter a lamb and you will eat a meal together of that lamb and you will take the blood from that lamb and you will wipe it on the doorframe of your house. And when the angel comes to strike down the firstborn son, if it sees the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of the house, it will pass over that home. And so that night among the Hebrew people who were slaves in Egypt, there was rejoicing. But among the Egyptians, there was great wailing as the firstborn son across Egypt died. And that night, Pharaoh said, you may let the people go. Jews to this day still celebrate the Passover. Oftentimes now it's called a Seder meal in some situations. Um, churches that will celebrate it call it a Seder meal because we can celebrate what God did in the Old Testament. That's our Old Testament too. And so it is still celebrated to this day, the deliverance that the people have from Egypt. But Jesus is gathering. And Jesus is gathering in Jerusalem. It was common if possible to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. One person, um, Josephus, an ancient historian, By his numbers, there would be over 200,000 lambs slain for the Passover in Jerusalem. And over 1 million people crowded into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus has made plans, therefore, to celebrate this. And it's kind of interesting the way the passage starts. It says then in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And they asked, where do you want us to prepare for it? And he replies, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? There are several things to notice here just in the details. First of all, notice he asked Peter and John. And they know nothing about what plans are in place or what Jesus is thinking. And that is on purpose because if we were to have read from verse 1 of this chapter, you'll discover that one of them, Judas, is a traitor. He's already chosen to sell out Jesus Christ. He's waiting for a time when Jesus is away from the crowds. Which, tonight, will he be away from the crowds while they're celebrating the Passover? Yes. So does Jesus ask Judas to help prepare the Passover? No. He asked Peter and John. And Judas isn't to get wind of it. He says, you'll see a person carrying a jar of water. He doesn't, not just a person, he says a man carrying a jar of water. Men don't carry jars of water in the ancient world. Women carry jars of water. And so this would be a very unusual sign. And at first, some people wondered if this is just Jesus being the Son of God, having knowledge of what's going to take place. But as you start to think of him making plans so that Judas's time will come later as he betrays Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, I've started, at first I thought, this is Jesus' omniscience. He knows all that's going to take place. But now I've come to think more and more, no, he has prearranged all of this, kept it secret from the disciples, because he doesn't want Judas 
to act until the right time. And so he's arranged for the sign, and I don't know that for sure. I can't back that up. Jesus will answer that for us in heaven someday. But um, there's possibly he's arranged for a man to be carrying a jar of water, an unusual sign in the city of Jerusalem. The The two disciples will follow this man to the house. The upper room is typically, you think of a square box. There's the lower living quarters in Jerusalem. There's a box on top that's the upper room. Probably had a stairway up the side of the house with its own entrance to the door. They make preparations there. It's... It sounds as if it's already set as far as the furniture is concerned. So he gathers with his disciples. When they gather for the Last Supper, there's probably going to be a low table, this height. And it helps if you understand in the Bible how they would eat. Because you remember there's stories like where the woman comes and washes Jesus' feet. In order, how do you wash somebody's feet if you're sitting in a chair at a table? Do you, I mean, my kids crawl under the table. Mia walks under the table right now to get to the dog's food on the other side. But how in the world do you, how, you know, how do they sit? And what you need to understand is the table would be low, and they would sit around it. And, in fact, you can kind of tell in the picture. This is the picture, and see the background there? That's what we often think of, a traditional table and They're sitting in chairs. Isn't it nice that they sat in a photogenic way so that the camera angle would include many of the disciples? Unfortunately, that's not real life. That low table, they, especially for Passover, they would recline because they were to celebrate that they were free people. And so they would actually recline, and that would what would happen at a fancy ceremony. So they would get down on the floor, and this is how they would eat. They would lean on their left shoulder, lean on their left shoulder, The table would be out here. Their feet could be away from it. So when you read the stories about somebody anointing Jesus' feet, now all of a sudden you realize how Jesus' feet can be there. And with the right hand, they eat the food and they carry on conversation. Now maybe they had a pillow under them, you know, different arrangements like that. But the idea of a chair and a table like we would think of would be totally foreign in the Jewish world. So they are in a circular form gathered around eating the Passover meal. Hence, they are reclining at the table. And Jesus says this. When they start the meal, he says there in this passage, verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I just wondered this week, why? Why did Jesus eagerly desire to eat this Passover? I mean, sometimes we look forward to meals because it's just good food. And the, the other week, uh, we walked into Sam's Club. You know they have taste testing at those places? They had filet mignon on taste testing. Yeah, for free. Just walk up, eat the filet mignon. You can walk back around again if you wanted and get more. You know, sometimes you look at the food and you think, that's why. But if you've read about Passover meals or Seder meals and you realize they eat bitter herbs to remind them of how bitter the experience was in Egypt and all, I'm thinking it wasn't the food. That's not why Jesus was looking forward to it. Sometimes we think it's because it is a huge holiday within the Jewish world. And as I said, there's millions of people gathering. Jews would travel in. And no doubt it had rich significance. But Jesus, they celebrate this every year and he celebrated it before. It seems interesting that he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And some, some people, they look at it and they say, well, the reason Jesus looked forward to this is because now this is the culmination of his ministry. He's about to go to the cross and to die for the sins of his people. And so this is the beginning of the culmination. And may, 
no doubt there's a lot of emotion tied into that night because Jesus knows what's about to come. He's about to be arrested and crucified. But part of me thinks, I don't know if I would have looked forward to it. When he gets in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer is this, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. I'm thinking, I don't know that he looked forward to going into that. And I've just wondered, why did Jesus eagerly desire to celebrate this? And I wonder if it isn't because Jesus knew that that night he was giving his disciples and ultimately all of those who follow him a gift. Now in church, in the missionary church, we call it an ordinance. An ordinance means it's something commanded as a ceremony to be carried out. And so they call it an ordinance. Jesus commanded us to keep the Lord's Supper. And some traditions they call it a sacrament. Uh, sacrament means that it also carries divine grace with it, and that when you receive it, you receive the grace of God. Uh, the reason the missionary church calls it an ordinance is we don't want anybody to think that by taking communion, they're automatically saved, because we have to have faith in Christ to be saved. But Keith Drury, in his book, The Wonder of Worship, he calls it something different. He calls it a sign act. He says it's both a sign and an act. Jesus gives his followers a sign and an act. It is a sign, and we'll talk about the fact, you know, a sign of the body and the blood of Christ. It is a sign, but it's also an act. It is a drama that we act out, we participate in. It carries motion and eating and taking and breaking and all of those things. It becomes an act that communicates the message of the gospel. It is a sign act. And what we discover, I think, in this passage is this basic point that the communion meal is indeed the Christian message. It acts out and symbolizes the message of salvation. The communion meal is the Christian message. The meal is the message. And so, let's walk through those details quickly. And there are several that I'd like to highlight The first is this. What does it mean when we say the meal is the message? It means the meal is the message of a completed work. You notice in verse 16, it says, Jesus says this, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And in verse 18, Jesus says, For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And I wondered why, and to be honest, most of my commentaries were silent as I studied this week on the passage, why does Jesus not eat it again? And I don't know that that doesn't mean he doesn't eat. One, one commentator said, well, that means he isn't going to eat lamb until the kingdom of God comes. I think, well, maybe. Um, some thinks he still had, you know, uh, grape juice or wine to drink um, after the resurrection. No doubt he ate after the resurrection because he asked his disciples for food to eat. But why does he say, I'm not going to eat it again until the kingdom of God comes? And I read one commentary that I think points us in the right direction. Jesus will, never, will not celebrate the Lord's Supper with his people again until he returns. He will not celebrate it in heaven without us because he wants to remind us his work is finished. There is no need to partake of it and offer himself again. He is the sacrifice once and for all for sins. His blood covers every sin. His body crucified is the lamb 
slain that never needs to be offered again. In the Old Testament, they offered lamb after lamb after lamb. Jesus says, we're eating the meal once, and I offer it once here on earth, until again in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because his work is completed and finished. So he doesn't need to eat it again and again. The meal is also the message of a common fellowship. Verse 17 says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. Now it's interesting, if you read Luke's gospel, it's different than all the other gospels in talking about communion because it talks about a cup two times. And you might get confused. It talks about the cup before the bread, and it talks about a cup after the bread. If you've ever attended a ceremony where they reenact the Seder meal, you might understand why. Because at a Seder meal, there isn't just one cup. When they celebrate the Passover, there are four cups that would be celebrated. And the host would take all four cups at different points during the service. So when Luke says he took this cup in verse 17, it's either the first cup or the second cup of the Passover meal. It's not the third cup that we celebrate in communion, the cup of thanksgiving. But it's the first or the second cup. And this, it says, take this and divide it among you. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, one thing we don't want to do in our culture, because we are well aware of germs, and uh, so even my daughter on the basketball team, you know, when they, when they have to greet the other coach or the umps and everything now, nobody shakes hands anymore. We still do at church because we're, we're, we believe in sharing germs and everything, apparently. But in the basketball team, they fist bump everybody because as, apparently you get less germs that way. But when it says divided among you, you have to wonder. And it's hard, we're not sure. But it almost sounds like Jesus took this first or second cup of the Passover meal and said, here. And it was a common cup divided among you. Each of you has a share in it. And one thing we need to remember that when we come to the Lord's table, it brings us together into a common fellowship as the family of God. In fact, that's what Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians 11 where he teaches about communion. He says there in that passage, anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, notice he doesn't say the body and the blood of the Lord, Whenever he talks about communion, it's body and blood. But when he talks about the body of the Lord, he talks about the church. Who does not recognize the body of the Lord, the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The body is the family of God. So what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you offer your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in, in the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The Passover, as Jesus celebrated it, was never eaten alone. If you were to celebrate the Passover, they would go to Jerusalem. You would gather with your family. Or if your family was very small, you'd gather with two families. But you never had less than 10 people celebrate the Passover together. Never less than 10 in a home. And when we celebrate communion, it's not just you and God. It is you and God and all your brothers and sisters in Christ who celebrate it with you. And the great mistake we make in our evangelical tradition when we celebrate communion is that we think it's about God and us and about having some spiritual experience between us. But realize this, Jesus would say, if you have a problem with your brother, if they sinned against you and you need to forgive them, then you need to go forgive them before you take communion. Or if you've sinned against someone, 
a brother or sister in Christ. You need to go and confess your sin to them before you partake of communion. Because when you come to commune, you don't just commune with God, you commune with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you do it together. So in some churches, when they have a loaf of bread, the reason some churches will use one loaf, and that from that loaf they will tear it into pieces and break it into pieces so that everybody realizes we eat one loaf because we are one body, the body of Christ. And they celebrate it that way. Even when we pass like crackers or wafers or different things in that way, you'll notice we will stop and pause and we will all eat it together at the same time to emphasize the fact that we do this as the body of Christ. Even when I was in seminary, they served communion once, and I noticed they brought, they used, served it at the altar rails, but they always brought it down, and everybody at the altar rail ate it at the same time. No one ever ate it just by themselves. There was always a connection to the broader body of Christ, because communion connects us. It is the message of a common fellowship, the fellowship of believers. The meal is also the message of a coming kingdom. Four times in this passage, the word kingdom appears. Verse 16 and 18, especially during the meal part. In verse 16, Jesus says, For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And in verse 18, he says, For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so, you have to understand, when you celebrate communion, a lot of times we think, well, it's about what Jesus did, his death and burial and resurrection Back at Calvary, that's true. But every time you celebrate it, Paul says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is always looking forward because the communion meal is to be a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation that takes place when all God's people gather together in the new heavens and new earth. And so this meal is a foretaste of what we have to look forward to. In fact, even the Passover, when they would celebrate it, at the end of the Passover, there's always the hope that the Messiah will come for the Jewish people. And even to this day, they will say, hopefully next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. There's a Wisconsin church that heard about that. They found out that at Seder meals, that the Jewish people would always say, next year in Jerusalem. And they realize that communion doesn't just look backward, but it looks forward to the hope that we have. And so they as a church now, when they drink the cup, they all take the cup and they raise it up like a toast and they say, next time with the Lord. To celebrate what they look forward to. That the next time Jesus will take it will be when the kingdom comes. And they look forward to taking it with him. So the meal is a message of a coming kingdom. The meal is the message of a suffering Jesus. This part is the most familiar to us, where Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you. And then, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this. This is my body given for you. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We're reminded that the body of Christ was crucified and his blood was shed, that he might become the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's for you, it's for me. In fact, in communion, sometimes when there's a loaf,
the pastor will stand at the front and to visualize that for the people, to say the body of Christ broken for you. And to be honest, as a pastor, you have to dig your nails into it because the crust is hard. And you realize that you start ripping it apart, but that the church body might see the body of Christ broken for us on the cross of Calvary. I remember kneeling at the altar, receiving communion that seminary day, and that was a different tradition than I was used to. And so, as I was kneeling there, they had crackers and little wafers. We use wafers sometimes like this. And I remember looking over my shoulder, and kneeling next to me was Tony Banda, an African brother in Christ. And he was kneeling there, and he had the wafer. And they said, you know, you may now eat together. And so I went to put it in my mouth, and Tony stopped, and he took it, and he went, and he cracked it, and he broke it, and then he placed it in his mouth. Because in their tradition, you would never eat it without breaking it first. Because it is the body of Christ broken for you. He is the lamb crucified to pay for your sins and for my sins. And it's his blood that's shed. And so we drink together from the cup, reminded that Jesus shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So the meal is the message. And it's not just the message of su the suffering Jesus. That's what Luke calls him in this passage. He uses the term suffering. It is also the message of a new covenant. Now, I always find that to be an odd word. Covenant, we don't use that very often. We have contracts. We have agreements. In fact, I looked up the word covenant just to give us a simpler understanding of that word that we don't hear very often. And it was defined this way, an agreement between God and man based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is an agreement between God and man that defines how we can live in relationship with one another. And Jesus says the blood is the new covenant, his blood shed. Because in the Old Testament, the old covenant was based on the blood of lambs that could only cover over sins. But the blood of Jesus Christ washes away sin that we might live in relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it establishes a new covenant by his blood that is shed for us. So the meal is also the message of a new covenant. The meal is the message of personal appropriation. You ever think of it when you take communion, you can sit there and just watch people take it, but to take it, you have to eat it and drink it yourself to participate you have to appropriate it for yourself. And isn't that true of the gospel message that you have to receive it for yourself? John Stott writes, For in the drama of the upper room, the disciples were not spectators only, but participants. Jesus not only broke the bread, but gave it to them to eat. Similarly, he not only poured out the wine, but gave it to them to drink. Just so, it was not enough for Christ to die. We have to make the blessings of his death our own. The eating and the drinking were and still are a vivid, acted parable of receiving Christ as our crucified Savior and feeding on Him in our hearts by faith. 
Just like we have to take communion, we have to eat it and digest it into our body, so with salvation, we have to receive ourselves by faith, Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It is a message of personal appropriation. The meal is also a message of fallible followers. As you read on through the passage, you just realize who's there, don't you? There's Judas seated around the table there. As Luke tells the story, there's the disciples. They're disputing over who is going to be the greatest and who's the most important. And Jesus is like, are we still arguing about this? He says, I've come as one who serves. You should understand. You should be servants. And then Jesus turning his attention to Peter. He says, Peter. Actually, he doesn't say Peter. Do you notice? He says, Simon, Simon. Why? Because Peter's faith is going to fail. So he uses the name prior to Peter's following Christ calls him Simon, Simon, not Peter, Peter, because he's not going to be a rock tonight. He will fail tonight as the rock. And you discover around the table a group of fallible followers, and yet Jesus eagerly offers them communion. Do you realize when we celebrate communion, communion is for sinners, and I find that when we celebrate communion, we, we read that passage about examining ourselves. And I think we, we sometimes get the idea, and, and we, re, we misread it um, in 1 Corinthians, but about examining ourselves, we get this idea that we have to get ourselves cleaned up and, and everything taken care of before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And I think that's like washing the dishes before you put them into the dishwasher. How many of you have a dishwasher? How many of you with a dishwasher, you wash the dishes in the sink and they're scrubbed totally clean, maybe not disinfected, but there's really nothing left on any of the dishes and then you put them in the dishwasher so that it can then rewash what you've washed in the sink so that you can feel now that they're double washed, they're clean and ready to go back on the shelves. You double wash them. And I think that's what we do as Christians, not realizing this, that communion is for sinners who understand that it's the blood and the body of Christ that invites us to come. And we can't make ourselves ready for this table. You can't pray enough to clean yourself up. It's the body and blood of Christ that cleans us up. And so we come as sinners, repentant, yes, but we come as sinners to the table, because that's who Jesus invites to celebrate it. And so, the meal is a message of fallible followers. And finally, the meal is a message of an opposing world. The passage ends in a weird way. Jesus asked him in verse 35, when I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Remember, he sent his disciples out and says, don't take anything with you. Just if a house receives you, then have your blessing on it. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your sandals and go on to the next place. And he says, he asked him that night, he says, when I sent you out, did you lack anything? He said, not a thing. We were, in other words, we were welcomed, we were received, we were well taken care of. And what Jesus says, and, and lots of questions get asked about this because it talks about swords and all, but don't miss the big point. Jesus says, from now on, understand this, the world will be your enemy. You were well received before, but starting tonight, when I'm arrested and crucified, understand you are in a spiritual battle and you will not be welcomed everywhere. And when we celebrate communion, we do so as the body of Christ, but we realize there is a world outside that stands in opposition to the message of the gospel, that needs to hear the message of the gospel.
and the good news of Christ. But when we partake of communion, it, it reminds us and should remind us of that. And we discover in all these ways that the communion meal is the Christian message. It's the message of Christ who in the past was crucified, who right now gathers us together and in the future one day we'll celebrate in a new kingdom, that meal. So I've taken it all apart. Now I found something. When you dissect something and take it apart, typically if it's dissecting in biology class, that means it's what? Dead. And I find sometimes that's how communion is. Well, yeah, we get the right ideas in our head, and we get all the right theology, and we can have all the points, and we wrote down all our sermon notes, and, and it can feel dead. And I wondered, Jesus, if, was the goal to give us a theology of communion? Because he said, I eagerly desired to celebrate this with you. And I just think it had to go deeper than just the theology. He knew all that, but it had to go deeper than that. And I was reminded of something. It wasn't a communion meal, but it was a meal. Many times I've referenced stories about when we attended church in Mississippi when I was in seminary, and um, my wife and I went to Dayspring Community Church, and I've told you, I met in a roller rink. Well, Dayspring Community Church, we had small groups that met. So uh, anywhere from 10 to 20-some people gather in houses on Sunday nights, and every Sunday night there were small groups. And eventually they asked me, they said, John, they said, will you lead a small group for our youth? And I said, that's fine. How many are there? There's three. I said, okay. So we had, we had small group for the three youth that were there um, starting off. And I said, well, where are we going to meet? Because church on Sunday morning, we rent a roller skating rink, getting this church going. And um, what are we going to do about that? And they said, the Kugel family, they said, well, you can meet in our house. I said, okay. I said, I got another problem. I said, on Sunday nights, all of you not only meet in houses, but you eat a meal together. I said, I'm not a great cook. They don't want peanut butter and jelly every Sunday night when they get together for youth group. And so we, we just put a sign-up sheet out, and then different adults in the church would sign up, and every night they would cook a meal and uh, drop it off for the youth to eat, and there was only three of them. So we would have our little Bible study and play a game, and we eat our meal together at the Kugel's house with the three youth that were there. Eventually it grew to four or five. And, uh, and then one day, one of the ladies in church said, hey, I want to bring my neighbor. Can I bring Keisha? And I said, well, sure, you can bring Keisha. So Keisha started coming. And there was free food there. I mean, that's what youth group is. Half of it is based on youth ministry is free food. And so, so they had the free food, and, and Keisha liked to come in to eat. And so after the meeting was done, she was very quiet and shy. She, but she asked, she said, hey, can I bring my brother June? I said, well, sure, you can bring your brother June. And, and June started coming. So June and Keisha started coming. They came for a few weeks. They said, hey, can we invite our cousin? We want to invite, can we invite our cousin Scoop? And I said, yeah, you can invite Scoop. So Scoop came. And then next thing we know, well, Scoop said, well, can I invite my sister Karina? Yeah, you can invite Karina. What about our cousin Tiny Tim? I said, yeah, you can invite Tiny Tim. That's fine. What about my boyfriend West? Yeah, bring your boyfriend West. That's great. And the group started growing. And, and, and it grew and grew. And finally, we realized the Kugel's house was not a big enough house to handle the the church kids that were coming, and then these were all inner city kids from Jackson, Mississippi. And the next thing, we, we were up to like 20 kids meeting in this house, and we're like, this isn't going to work. And so they said, well, why don't you go meet at the roller skating rink? When we rent the roller skating rink, it's for the entire day. We have to pay for a whole day's use, so we still have use of it at night. I said, okay, we'll go to the roller rink. So youth group met at the roller rink, and you could walk into the roller rink, and it was, I mean, it's a square box. It's a rectangle. You walk into the main door, to the left on the wall is all the, all the skates to rent. To the right is where they have their food and snacks, pretzels, pizza, stuff like that to buy. Right in front of you is a whole bunch of plastic um, picnic tables. 
They looked just like the white tables, you know, eight-foot tables that you can buy at Sam's Club. But they were picnic tables. They had a row of them just all the way across there with a little half wall and then the roller skating rink. And so we would go in there. We'd play games out on that area, and then we would sit at the tables. And at the picnic tables, we'd eat dinner, and we'd also do our, and we'd set some chairs up on the other side in front of the roller skates, and we would have our Bible lesson. Well, I found out something. When you serve the meal, first it got harder to feed 20-some people and get volunteers for that. There was only about four hearty souls that were willing to cook for that large of a group. But, but they did it, and uh, they would cook. We'd put the food out across the table that had all the junk you can buy, you know, the, 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 the little soda pop rings and all the candies and the little Chinese yo-yos and all that. Across the glass t- table, we'd set all the food across there, and then the kids would sit at the tables. And lo and behold, the inner city girls would sit at this table, the inner city boys would sit at this table, the church boys would sit at this table, and the church girls would sit at this table. And, and, and they just would all divide up, and they would sit there and eat their meal. And so finally we got the idea, it was like, okay, this just, is, I mean, they're not interacting at all. And as far as we know, we were the only group in all of Jackson, Mississippi that had both African American and Caucasian people meeting together at the same time in a church service, where it was split 50-50 in attendance. And so we got the idea, I said, what if we take the picnic tables and we turn them and we make it into one long table? So even if they still sit in their group, they're still, there's now sitting at the same table. And so we did that and we said, well, what if we make them pray? Because we're, we're sure half these kids don't even pray before they eat. So what if we teach them the Lord's Prayer and we'll sit around this, this table and we'll, we'll make them hold hands That'll scare them. We'll make them hold hands. And so I'm sure June doesn't want to hold his sister Keisha's hand, but he also doesn't want to hold Caleb's hand from church. So we'll make them hold hands, and we'll say the Lord's Prayer before they can get up to get food. And then we just watched it. Where week after week, the only place, in fact, Bethany's, her coworkers stopped her in the hospital when they'd hear her talk about a youth group and say, you have a youth group with African Americans and Caucasians? She'd say, yes. And every single week around that table, it became a long table with 20-some youth gathered around it. And the adults would come to serve, African-Americans and Caucasians, seated around that table, holding hands. They'd say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I'd open my eyes. And for a few seconds, you'd see a glimpse of the kingdom. You'd see people brought together by a meal who didn't belong together according to the world. And I can't help but wonder, is that what Jesus, when that night he says, oh, I eagerly desire to celebrate this meal with you because he knew he was giving us something that would bring together blacks and whites and Hispanics, rich and poor and the intelligent and those who struggle with intelligence and the able body and the physically challenging. He bring them all together and say, I'm going to give them a meal. And every single time they get together, oh, what it will be a foretaste of the kingdom. And with that, he said, oh, I eagerly can't wait to give this to you. And we, God's people, 
We should be able to dissect it and know the different parts of it. But brothers and sisters, we, God's people, should love the Lord's table. Because it's where we come together and we, we remember the past. We look forward to the kingdom when we'll celebrate with all nationalities and all tribes and all tongues. And right now, right here in this place, it brings us together as the family of God in the presence of Jesus to worship Him. We, the people of God, should love the table of God. Oh, how our hearts should beat for it. And our souls long for it. Love the Lord's table. Love it and long for it. We bow our heads with Jesus, I pray that you will work your miracles in our midst of drawing together who are fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. You brought them around a table and they became your family that night. Make us the people of Gospel Center, the family of God united around the table of God. And give us a love and a longing for your supper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.